hosting for your tech life. Proudly provided by WebCentral. Everything technology, from computers to mobile phones, TVs and the internet. Information you want, want. all the help you need. Your Tech Life with Trevor Long. Alrighty then, let's do this episode 331, Your Tech Life. My name is Trevor Long. You can find information about pretty much everything we talk about here on this show at eftm.com.au. And if you've got a question about technology, you want to have a chat about technology, anything else in your life technologically, uh, jump on the website, eftm.com.au. It is that simple. Um, we'd love to hear from you and uh, hopefully get you on the on the show and have a chat about whatever it is that's troubling you or exciting you about technology. Um, a few things to talk about uh, this week. Harvey Norman's online delivery service, the NBN political football that has really annoyed me this week. Um, robotics in health is an exciting topic, as is probably more so for me, just a little bit, Gran Turismo Sport coming to PlayStation in November. We're going to talk about preventing shark attacks. Yes, there's a technological bent there. And I want to talk about and hear from people affected by the Telstra internet outage. And I actually, to be honest, I want to know what happened. So if you know someone at Telstra in any reasonable capacity, uh, not just some everyday random at a shop, I want someone who actually knows. I want to know what really went wrong. I have my suspicions. We will also talk to the uh, Managing Director of Product and Marketing at the ANZ Bank about Apple Pay. Um, I couldn't fit that in last week's show, so (laughs) we'll do it this week. Um, We will talk about LED lighting. Now, the person I'm going to speak to on this week's show has probably the most unbelievable pedigree when it comes to design, innovation, and engineering. So... It was, an, it was awesome to meet him uh, today and to chat to him, and I will bring you that conversation about a lamp um, and commercial lighting a little bit later in the show. Plus, hold on to your hats, folks. Keep this episode downloaded. If you love your photography and you're thinking of heading to Vivid, we will talk to a Canon master photographer about how to get the best shot, what makes the best shot, some tips and tricks for people that um, uh, are looking to take great photography at um, at uh, at Vivid in Sydney, which starts this weekend. So there is never a better time to be alive. <laughs> it's never a better time to be Australian. And we do it all thanks to the good people at Garmin, Satellite Navigation, GPS Systems, the OLED TV range from LG. Take the OLED challenge today. And the GoPlay from Alcatel, $299 shockproof, Waterproof, dustproof phone available now at Big W and Australia Post and other places. Let's get cracking on your tech life. It might sound crazy what I'm about to say. But Trevor Long's the world's best techie. He's the kind of guy we picked on at school. And it wasn't fair.
Thursday night last week, Stephen Conroy, the former Minister for Communications, now the Shadow Minister for something, Senator Stephen Conroy's offices in Melbourne were raided by the Australian Federal Police. A uh, warrant was executed as well as on the uh, home of uh, a staffer, a Labor Party staffer. Uh, additionally, earlier in the day, uh, some 20 NBN Co. staff were interviewed by the Australian Federal Police. Wow. I mean, this thing blew up big time last Friday. And we're in the middle of an election campaign. So a lot of questions are being asked. But what I struggle with is the overwhelming, maybe it's because I live in the Twitter bubble, but the overwhelming just conspiracy and opinion raging through the reporting. You know, I've got a massive opinion on this. Absolutely. But I think it's important also to break back some facts when it comes to this story. Now, I watch a lot of political television. I watch Paul Murray Live every night if I can. And uh, I hope this story is still around in uh, um, on the the end of the week because I'm on air this weekend on 2UE on Sunday for six hours. (laughs) I will make this an hour of conversation. Um, There... There was just so much misreporting because the Labor Party have lines. They're, they're spewing out these lines trying to win political points. Let's just rewind a bit. Malcolm Turnbull didn't raid the Labor Party offices. Malcolm Turnbull didn't even ask the AFP to do it. Malcolm Turnbull didn't know it was happening until Thursday afternoon. Mitch Fifield, the communications minister, didn't know the raids were happening. Mitch Fifield didn't know until he was told on Thursday afternoon the raids were happening. But Mitch Fifield did know, these are all the facts, Mitch Fifield did know that the NBN was likely to lodge a complaint with the AFP about the documents which were being stolen from their offices and handed over to media and Labor Party officials. Mitch Fifield chose not to tell the Prime Minister about that. Which, now, that's fact. Which, now, this is opinion. I think that's a good thing. He chose not to create an internal political conversation about a police investigation. How's that not a good thing that he did that? So then comes the conversation about an NBN staffer was on the raids. Not unusual for the AFP in an investigation like this to bring someone from the organisation along to the raids to witness and help them seek out documents. Otherwise, they'd have to take every document in the office and then go through them. So what happened was he, he or she was there, and he or she helped cite the documents. He or she was not a technical guru. He or she was a security person. He, this was the person that led the internal investigation at the NBN. And because they don't know every intricate detail about the documents, when a document was found that was likely to be part of it, a photo was taken, that photo was shared with NBN officers to confirm it was one of the documents, the photo was then deleted, and yes, there may, maybe out of the 32 photos taken, five of them were not documents that were related. Do we really think the NBN's just now hoarding those documents and sharing them around? And also, do you really think that that there'd be a document called Labor Party NBN Policy 2016, that the AFP, who by their own admission continually monitored the NBN staff on the raids, would have let them take a photo of? What complete and utter rubbish. Like, just utter rubbish. So 
I pretty much can't believe or even listen to anything that the Labor Party is saying. It's, it's just so silly. So then the big argument really is, is this some sort of um, uh, slight against whistleblowers and should we have better whistleblower laws? You know what? This ain't whistleblowing. It's theft. Now, if I was to steal a document from SBS when I worked there, Okay, put it on a USB stick or print it out and give it to someone else and it contained information about, I don't know, ad rates or hope pr- prospective revenue or how much we hope to save on a big deal that was under negotiation, that could impact on that negotiation. It could have a negative impact on the business because it could mean that that company charges more or saves us less. So what if that document that was stolen by the NBN staffer contained information about the NBN's budget for, I don't know, copper repatriation. And then they went to tender for the copper repatriation and the tenderers all knew that the upper end of the budget was $10 million. So why would they quote five when they know they're willing to pay 10 This is why it's commercially sensitive information that should not have been stolen from the office. Now, if that NBN staffer, and I know Bill Morrow, the CEO of the NBN Co, and, and I'm not making a slight on him here, I'm using it as an example, This is not truth. This is an example. If Bill Morrow had connections to a company that was awarded a $10 million contract and was getting a $1 million kickback into his own pocket as a result of the awarding of that contract, that needs whistleblowing. Okay, get the evidence, send it to whoever, the Labor Party or the media, and let's expose him. That's whistleblowing. That's not leaking or theft. What happened here is leaking and theft. The documents don't show that the NBN's behind or costing more. It's probably costing more and it's slower than the Labor Party was because we changed governments. We changed governments and therefore literally 180 degrees changed our tack. And of course it was going to slow down. As I've said a hundred times, we have an NBN plan. There is now a published list of almost every suburb in the country, 9.5 million homes covered by it. And those suburbs have a delivery, a construction date between now and the end of 2018. 9.5 million homes. That's the list we should keep them to. That's the list we should be politicking. We should be checking it and checking it twice. Everything else is just utter garbage. So do me a favour. When you hear a politician talking about the NBN, just turn it off. Don't listen to them. Just don't. Just ignore it. And you hear someone like Ed Husick, who I have massive respect for. He absolutely is the epitome of a local member. But he absolutely talks out his ass when he starts sprouting the Labor Party lines about the NBN. Because it's just for political point scoring. So, and Ed has mentioned, and we've agreed, he, he might even come in here and we'll have a chat about all things politics, not about this particular issue, um, in in between now and when the, the campaign ends. Um, because I really do like the bloke. but. I won't have him sit here or anywhere else sprouting the lines about the NBN when what we should be all focused on is building the NBN. Anyway, I just really can't cop the coverage of it this week. I can't cop the reporting. And I hope that you are using the truth meter in your mind's eye when you listen to and read the reports that are coming out about that over the next few weeks or days. It is utter garbage. Now, Harvey Norman today, um, or quietly last week, let's be honest, I was aware, but 
um, we didn't announce it till today. Harvey Norman today announced a same day and three hour delivery window. So as of now, you can go to the Harvey Norman website, and if you're there, it's say 10 a.m. in the morning. You see an iPad you want, or you want a new computer. You click buy. You go to your your, your checkout. You go to your cart. You check out, and you choose a delivery option: courier, standard delivery, same day delivery. Or schedule delivery. So you can now schedule for three days in advance at a certain time of day in a three-hour window. Or you can have it delivered today to your home within three hours or your workplace. This is a big deal. It's all facilitated by a a company called ShipIt. They're a technology company that manages the back-end infrastructure that turns the order into a courier, which then finds a courier and gets the whole thing happening, right? But And so, so kudos to ShipIt for having the technology, but... Really, let's focus on Jerry Harvey here. Now, we we did the story tonight on A Current Affair, and you might have seen it. Jerry, I think quite reasonably, almost admitted that this was an important move and and finally a sign of the times for Harvey Norman. Harvey Norman languished behind people like Kogan for years in online retail. Years. Holding on to the bricks and mortar plan. But the bricks and mortar plan isn't dead. It's not even dying. But it is not everyone's choice. So now, as an impulse buyer, which I am, I can go, I really want a computer. Instead of ringing around all the Harvey Norman stores, I just go online. It'll be here in three hours. Now, I've said this today in in various places. Harvey Norman has a complex um, retail model. They have franchises each store. In fact, each part of a store, the electronics, the homewares, different things, are different franchises. Which means when I order online... Who gets the cash? Now, you know what? I've given that no extra thought because I don't care. It's not my problem. All I care about is can I and will I get the product? And that's the perfect thing that Jerry Harvey should be should be and has been thinking about. Making it better for the consumers to buy products, to own products, and to shop for products. We have Amazon Prime in the States and the UK where you can subscribe to their service and ensure that you get prompt same-day deliveries. We never, I don't think ever, but we're unlikely to get that anytime soon here in Australia because they have to build warehouses in every state. There's a whole bunch of things that need to happen. Harvey Norman has the distribution base already. They have stores everywhere. So this is pretty good. It's really good. I think it's encouraging news from Harvey Norman. Congratulations, Harvey Norman. And, um, yeah, I'd, I'd be very interested to see what you think and, and whether you think that it's got uh, that's going to get you shopping online. I honestly, I'm one of those people who barely shops online because I I just want it now. So if this is the thing that's going to get me buying it now, owning it now, I'm in. I'm all in. So check it out. Uh, I've written an article about that at uh, eftm.com.au. Harvey Norman's new uh, same day and three hour delivery windows. Check it out. Eftm.com.au. Now, the LG OLED challenge is something that, in fact, you can go to a Harvey Norman store to take. Take the OLED challenge today. Stare at an OLED TV and then just your head to the left and look at an LED TV, an LG LED TV at that, and compare the difference. Amazing picture quality starts with the deepest blacks. With an infinite contrast ratio, you see the detail in dark scenes in movies that LED LCD TVs can't deliver. No other TV can beat the pure black of an OLED. 
Indulge in exquisite, nuanced colors that exceed the industry's RGB color standard in wide gamut, wide color gamut mode. When color this spectacular leaps from a pure black backdrop, you know you're watching something very special. Each pixel is self-lighting. There's a quad-core processor behind this and six-step upscaling for Ultra HD uh, quality. Sound designed by Harman Kardon. It's got Netflix built in. Seriously, you've got to check out the LG range of OLED TVs. Take the OLED challenge today. Your Tech Life with Trevor Long. Thank you for listening. Now, what is it? Six months since Apple Pay launched in Australia with American Express? Probably 18 months, nearly two years. I can remember vividly sitting in the in the theatre in Cupertino when Tim Cook announced uh, Apple Pay. Um, and the concept of Apple Pay in and of itself was, was brilliant. Um, I've done... More than enough stories on a current affair about the, we call them dangers of tap and go. They're really just risks of tap and go and risks that are absorbed by the banks with, uh, you know, someone grabbing your card and spending a hundred bucks. But all of that can be solved with simple biometrics, biometrics that exist in your smartphone today being a fingerprint. And the simplicity of the process from day one looked awesome. I was there. I'm lucky enough. I've got an American Express card. I've been using Apple Pay for the last five or six months, but hey. AMX isn't accepted everywhere for whatever reason. And also, that's credit. I don't want to use credit all the time. I'm buying petrol. I'm buying groceries on my debit card. So I made a commitment, um, I think it was October last year, that the first bank to launch Apple Pay in Australia, because I knew it would be some really frustrating process where backroom deals would need to be done. So if my bank, St. George, wasn't the first to switch, I would switch. I did that this week. And to talk about ANZ, Apple Pay, is Managing Director of Product and Marketing, Matt Boss from ANZ. G'day, Matt. Hi, Trevor. How are you? Thanks for having me. Mate, I'm an ANZ customer. As of uh, Tuesday, I think it was, I I prodded into the uh, Pennant Hills branch up here in Sydney, and the staff were wonderful. Um, They were inquisitive as to why this random person would just suddenly walk in and say, I need an account. Um, But they were awesome. And in fact, my card arrived 15 minutes ago, and I'm now... Uh, active on Apple Pay, I'm itching to get out and, and tap and go. Has the process been positive for ANZ, despite the obvious uh, hoopla and, and publicity around the launch at the back end? Have you seen it making an impact? Well, let me actually start by uh, by thanking you for uh, for becoming a customer. I saw your your Twitter activity and was very pleased that you followed through on your commitment. So uh, so thank you for the business, most importantly. Uh, to your question, yeah, listen, it, it has been a it has been a very um, positive thing for ANZ, um, and I say that on on a few fronts. Um, probably starting with just for um, ANZ uh, itself and its staff members, um, it's something that that we are um, incredibly proud of, and um, the amount of stories that are coming in from uh, our front line around. Uh, what they've been able to, to do with this, how proud they are of it, and uh, most importantly, how pleased the customers are. So we're hearing a lot of that, that activity um, and, and seeing a lot of stories on that. Um, we also have seen a tremendous amount of activity via social media yeah. uh, around uh, questions to us, but also obviously a lot of questions from customers to, to their banks around when they were going to have Apple Pay. In terms of the back end, uh, from a business metric standpoint, um, although I can't go into to, to great detail, what we've what we've said uh, in other forms or other outlets is that we've actually seen we've absolutely seen incremental business. Um, everything from uh, visits to our website 
um, ANZ.com has been up uh, quite significantly. We've seen incremental account growth both on the credit card side and the uh, everyday side of the transaction banking side, which is what uh, you referenced you just did on Tuesday. Um, and we're seeing uh, volumes flow through uh, our Apple Pay microsite where people are coming to learn more about it and then clicking through to, to open accounts. Uh, so all in all, I think the, 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 the result of this uh, has been great on, on many, many fronts across the board. Is it true one of your senior leaders, I think, at the launch, which I, I couldn't be at because I was in Melbourne on the day, uh, mentioned the, the overwhelming social media force that came to push you towards this decision? I mean, there has been a lot of talk, but we do get caught in a bit of a social media bubble sometimes, thinking that everyone's talking about it, but really it's, you know, one-fifth of nobody. But was there an overwhelming kind of customer push towards getting Apple Pay happening? Well, what I'd say, Trevor, is that uh, a lot of people have asked kind of how or why or when we made the decision to go with mm. Apple Pay. And it really boiled down to, to what Shane said, which is, I think, what you're, what you're referencing. And that is, it, it simply came down to that there's a clear demand for customers. And in, in just in your intro, how passionately you talked about it, um, we've seen that really throughout, uh, th- throughout all kind of engagements. And if, if, you just, if you just look at, and again, to your point, Twitter may, may or may not represent um, the full masses, mm. but the amount of questions, uh, the amount of, of asking for it, and uh, again, as Shane, our CEO, said, you know, he's gotten both uh, social media inquiries as well as, as letters from customers. And so there's absolutely demand. And I think some of the, the, the metrics that I talked about uh, a second ago certainly show themselves that that demand uh, and that pent-up demand for this uh, very much is real. The, um, you mentioned the, the kind of overwhelming positive impact it has on your staff, you know, at the branch level, I'm tipping in the office, you know, um, even people that don't have direct customer uh, access. Is it a positive thing? And I, I, I've never worked in a bank, but I've certainly worked in organizations that are large enough to get excited when something big happens. And I, I'm not going to suggest you haven't been innovative, but I think if I had to award a title for the most innovative bank, um, it would have been Combank um, in the past. You know, they just did, they just, I don't know whether they were actually um, popular products, but they certainly pushed and pushed with different products and ideas. So I think the, the vibe inside the Combank was probably that we were innovative. Does this help uh, on, in a customer, on, on a staff level, make staff realize that you are pushing the boundaries, you are trying to be a, a, a different bank and a better bank for your, for your customers? Is that, a, is, that a, is that an important thing? It certainly is, and it certainly has. And um, when when uh, when Shane, um, again our CEO, uh, has 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 come into the job in January, one of one of his uh, first, I guess, announcements or decisions was to point uh, a head of of digital that will be on his leadership table. Mm. So I think that that this is at the top of of the bank's the bank's agenda. Mm. And a, one of you know just kind of a, a small a small example of this is we we actually have an internal. Uh, what I call almost collaboration or social platform in the bank. Um, we call it Max Connect. And on the day of the launch, uh, I posted a bit of an article. And um, although it's a somewhat new platform, it had more feedback, uh, more comments mm. than anything that we've, we've, we've ever done. Um, and these are stories coming from Melbourne, but these are stories coming from around all Australia. And I think the point that you hit on around CBA 
actually just got a piece of information today around um, exactly what, what you talked about, and that's around the perception of leadership. Yep. And externally, prior to launch, CBA was, was clear, uh, the clear leader in the, the perceived uh, leadership of, of mobile payments. Yep. And a new survey just came out. Um, after the first 10 days of, of our launch of Apple Pay, we've moved to number one. Right. Um, and so I think that perception um, and, and even reality in the eyes of our staff is there, but I'd also say we're very much seeing it in just the, the overall context of this market. Now, forgive me, you may not have made an announcement in this regard, or I may have missed it, but um, have you had conversations publicly yet about Android Pay? Yeah, we have. We have announced our commitment to Android Pay. That was actually announced before Apple Pay, and that is due out in uh, the middle of this year. And the important point of that um, is that we, are, we will be the only bank uh, that can offer you a mobile payment uh, solution or a mobile payments experience, regardless of, of what phone you have, whether that's mm. an Apple one or an Android one. And we think that that's a really key and important thing to our customers. Yeah. And I think the critical thing for me here, and I've been accused, and I don't know, <laughs> I don't know whether anyone at your bank saw it, but we had a, a rather large Twitter war uh, a couple of nights ago with a lady who was accusing me of being paid uh, by ANZ to tweet. Um, and I just said, listen, I'm, I'm a very passionate individual and I, I tweet about very, th- very passionate things. Uh, no one pays me to tweet anything. But it's interesting that all, all this does is create uh, a closer connection to, to, your, to your bank account. I mean, it's interesting. You think about uh, Apple Pay as a simple solution. And I remember paying at my local pizza shop for the first time with Apple Pay and they were just blown away. And then it just becomes second nature. It's a simple thing. And I think it helps people engage. Customers feel closer to their product if, if it's simple and it's also more secure and that's one of the great advantages of Apple Pay is the security that it offers users. Without question, uh, there, there's no more frequent interaction that you have with a bank if we'd want to call it an interaction with the yep. bank than buying uh, and paying for things every day. It's something we all do um, and we do it with, with our credit card um, or debit card, and now we get to do it with Apple Pay, which, which as you said, actually is, is truly a, a pretty wonderful, wonderful experience. And I think that ability to um, have those more engaging, those more delightful experiences, if you will, do only make you more aware and more, um, and just a bigger advocate, I think, of, of the bank and the products we offer. Uh, so we are seeing that, and, and I can speak, um, obviously, as a, as a customer here as well. It is, it, it's absolutely changed my behavior. I, 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 you know, I wasn't sure if it would completely, it completely would, yeah. but, um, but, but I, am, I am using it uh, across all transactions uh, day in and day out. Well, I can only hope that more people um, see it for what it is. I mean, deep down, I hope that you're not the, the only one for, for too long. <laughs> From your point of view, I'm sure that would be awesome. But I, I certainly hope that everyone um, gets the experience over the course of time. And as I've said several times, and I'm, I'm just writing an article on it now, um, the, the problem Australia have, and you would have seen this, is loyalty. We are an amazingly loyal nation of people who buy Holdens all our lives, buy Fords all our lives, have our home loans, our credit cards, everything. We just won't switch. Mobile phone companies, you name it, we won't switch. And I think it's important that people realise that whether it's going to or from a bank, in this case, my experience of walking in, opening an account was actually easier than I thought it would be. I didn't even need the 100 points of ID and all that kind of stuff. 
it is actually a very simple process. You just need to give yourself half an hour of time to make it happen. And that's what we need to convince people, not just for this purpose, but overall because it creates choice and, uh, and better, better value for customers, I think. Oh, yeah, we think so. And, and again, do appreciate your business. Um, and uh, it is a very easy process. We've got, we've got a wonderful, uh, helpful staff out there. And, and don't forget also, um, it's just as easy to do it uh, online. Um, and that's actually where we've seen some of the biggest uplift is customers just engaging us uh, online to, to open these accounts. So if, if you don't have time to get to a branch, you, you can certainly uh, hop online. Um, and we do think that um, with, with being a bank that, that has made this decision, um, you know, it, it just foreshadows the future decisions we will be making and how we think about this from a, from a customer perspective. Well, congratulations on the launch. Um, well done being first. I look forward to banking with you, and uh, thanks for the conversation. Thanks, Trevor. Appreciate it. Your Tech Life with Trevor Long. Thank you for listening. We do it all thanks to the good people at Garmin, Satellite Navigation, GPS Technology, and they just this week announced the Vivo Smart HR Plus. This is a smart activity tracker with wrist-based heart rate plus GPS. Turn your steps into strides with Vivo Smart HR Plus, the GPS activity tracker with Elevate, wrist heart rate technology. Not only does it count steps, calories, floors, climbed, and intensity minutes, it uses GPS satellites to track how far and how fast you go during almost any activity. From running to rollerblading, it also includes the move bar that gives you a vibrating reminder to get up and move when you've been active for too long, inactive for too long. Stay connected with smart notifications that include email, text, calls, social media, calendar alerts, and more right on your wrist. The Vivo Smart HR Plus. Check it out today at garmin.com.au. Now, Deakin University in Melbourne this week announced an innovative new product which they had developed in collaboration with Telstra. Uh, Telstra's role in this really uh, critical because of the communication required. This is a robot. This robot conducts ultrasounds. Now, it's all well and good to create, and people that have seen an ultrasound um, will know that you know, you're rubbing a thing over the belly and looking inside the belly. Now, the robot doesn't do a pattern-based tracking and then someone analyzes it later this thing is real time so this remote robot can be in another part of the country so let's say this robot could be in the dubbo hospital let's say the dubbo hospital doesn't have ultrasound capabilities someone living at quambone or mudgy might need to go and have an ultrasound done urgently and let's say sydney's the only place with it well now they can drive to dubbo and someone in Sydney, an expert in Sydney, can remotely operate the ultrasound unit in Dubbo. This is exciting. This is next-level telehealth. And this is why we need a digital economy. This is why we need a connected country. Uh, it's a great innovation. Um, kudos to the Deakin University. Kudos to Telstra for, I guess, helping fund it and, and make it happen. And uh, just generally, it's very exciting. Imagine not having to go to the big city for that initial diagnosis. You know, that, uh, taking a day trip to the city is a big deal for country people. It really is. You know, you've got to go from Young to Canberra to get a, a, a large amount of work done. Well, Young's got a hospital. Why can't they have this? Now, it's, it's obviously going to cost money, but the, the change, the, the quality of life that it'll give people in terms of remote health and lack of travel, 
will change the way uh, health is done into the future. So check it out. I've put information about the uh, remote telehealth robot developed by Deakin University up on the website at eftm.com.au. Honestly, I've been waiting for this announcement for years. The PlayStation 4 doesn't have a Gran Turismo. Okay? Now, there's a Gran Turismo, but it's not made for PlayStation 4. It was made for the PlayStation 3 and adapted for the PlayStation 4. Gran Turismo Sport will be available on November 16. It is made for the PlayStation 4. The graphics in the gameplay that we've seen online looks ridiculous. Honestly, ridiculous. It has just mind-blowing reality. And here's two great things, which I haven't even delved into in my article. Firstly, FIA accreditation. There are going to be the ability within this game for you as a driver to drive consistently, drive certain events, drive certain ways, and actually earn points towards an actual FIA license. And CAMS in Australia have come on board and said they're also going to support it. Now, I don't know how that works in reality. I don't know if that means you can then go and race at Bathurst without doing anything else. But it certainly means that the governing bodies of motorsport in this this country and around the world are appreciating the quality and the skill that goes into uh, computer gaming. I mean, you can't argue with the Gran Turismo um, GT Academy with Nissan. Matt Simmons racing in the Blancpain um, Endurance Series right now. He's an Aussie who was a postie last year. And he's now a racing driver because he drove a Gran Turismo simulator. Bloody sensational. The second thing, and this is mind-blowing, especially for people who follow me on socials and know that I have just an awesome uh, racing simulator, this thing's going to be virtual reality enabled. So I'm going to be able to sit in, it doesn't even matter where I am, sit in a small room. I mean, you could sit my sim in, I don't know, an ensuite size room, PlayStation sitting next to it, Virtual reality goggles on, the PlayStation VR, driving Gran Turismo. I don't need to take over the TV. I don't need the sound. I'll have headphones on. I'm. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be next level stuff. I cannot wait to see it. I can't wait to play it. November 16 is when it launches. Um, you can check out some screenshots and the promo video for uh, for Gran Turismo Sport um, at, uh, at eftm.com.au. Now, I'm about to bring you my chat with um, Jake Dyson. Now, Jake Dyson has a very famous surname. A very famous surname. He is the son of James Dyson, to the point where I, I call him James like twice today. Embarrassing. Um, he has developed a lighting system called CSIS, which he'll explain. It is ridiculously innovative. Honestly, it's... Uh, I've I've never seen such an an innovation in technology outside of really his father's work. So I uh, had a tour of uh, of the Dyson offices today. Looked at a lot of the the Jake Dyson lighting product, and uh, had the pleasure of sitting down with Jake Dyson. And um, here's our chat with Jake Dyson. <laughs> We are here at Dyson in Sydney with uh, with the man himself, Jake Dyson. Now, I have to ask, before we talk about your product, 
Is it a challenge in life growing up with that name? Does it end, does it always end towards design? Because what you've ended up doing is the most amazing career choice given your family. Uh, yeah, I, mean, it, it, I didn't think it was a choice. It's, it's uh, something I've always been good at and enjoyed at school was, was art and design. It was the only thing I got good exam grades in. And, um, and I was good at sports as well, but... but it was it was very apparent to me quite early on that I wouldn't be good at something or excel in something unless I enjoyed it. Um, perhaps that's something, uh, you know, maybe a bit of advice we could give to other people that that if you enjoy something, you'll get involved in it and and you're more than likely to excel in it. You do hear that a lot, don't you? I mean, I hear it now, and I probably hear it now a little bit more than more than before because I've just done the same thing and kind of just gone, you know, what I'm not going to work for the man. I'm going to do my own thing and I enjoy it. And you do get that real passion about it and. I mean, early on, I look at you. Look, I've got a, my oldest is nine. Um, maybe that's something we should be encouraging with with kids: is to find that thing that they literally are passionate about. You know, what's wrong with asking a thirteen or fourteen year old what they want to do? And if they want to be an astronaut, well, off you go. Why do you have to become a tradie? So, when did you? I mean, obviously, you picked up a pencil as a as an early uh, at an early age. But was it in the the later part of high school or, or, or older in, into school that you realised that this was something that you know you would you would put your career to? I think it was the the later part um, of, of of high school, um, and and you know seeing seeing you know that I was getting good results in it, um, uh, and I went to art college when I when I when I done my A levels, and um, I think that's when I you know realised that's what I wanted to do in my life. Um, what's what's the what's the delineation between design? and what I could only call engineering, you'll probably correct me, but you've just taken me on a little tour of some of your products, which we'll talk about in detail, but what you just described to me was probably 10% was design in in the way that most people would think about it, you know, the beauty of a product. What you're actually doing is a form of engineering of lighting that I've never heard of before. Surely it's more about that, so that comes, that's a whole other thing than just picking up a pencil. Yeah, I mean, it's the integration of science um, and engineering uh, and, and putting those things together to make something work. Uh, it's not easy. Uh, you know, there were times it took me about three years to design these lights and you know, after six months I didn't think it was possible. But you, you've got to keep going and pursue it. And actually, um, you know, designing and engineering a product is one thing and then you've got to go and manufacture it and make it reliable. And that's the really, really big challenge. Um, you know, making sure that all the components are the same quality, that the, the parts come out the way you've designed it, at those very, very high accurate tolerances. So it's 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 a real challenge, and it's not for the faint-hearted. And if there's anything I uh, sort of learned from growing up, you know, in in this family and you know around my father, was seeing his immense struggles in the face of adversity uh, and never giving up, and and you know going on for ten years designing something until it was perfected. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a struggle, it's a personal challenge. Um, but I have to say that, you know, when you get there and you've, d- you've made the product and it works well and it's beautiful and uh, it fills you with immense pride and, and, and all of that sweat and tears becomes worthwhile. And you, you've only recently, you know, you've been doing this for some time, but you've recently brought your lighting company in, into within the, the overall Dyson brand, which gives you... I would have thought the most important thing it gives you is that freedom to um, not be under the commercial pressure of, as you mentioned to me before we recorded, of releasing a product every year to create a, a commercial cycle. Um, you know, 
your father doesn't release a, a, a hairdryer just because he had the idea. He, he has to perfect it before he does it. That would be the same with you now and any product you want to create. You've now got that time and that backing to, to bring a product to market in the way that only Dyson really ever, ever has as a private company. Yeah, I think it's, it's about um, identifying problems with products and going right back to basics. I mean, you t- take the hairdryer, for example. You know, the first thing they did is set up a laboratory and spend two to three years playing with human hair. And, and when you do that, you start to understand what damages hair. Um, and, and then you can understand how to improve that problem. And so it's going right back to basics. It's, you know, I'm not sure there's many companies out there that actually take it to that level, but it's taking it to that level that gives you the answer and the solution and enables you then to engineer and solve the problem with a brilliant product. So it's, it's, it's really that, that sort of process. And I've done the same with these lights. You know, you know, how can we make a, an LED last longer? How can we make it more reliable? Why are LEDs turning into disposable culture with light bulbs? Well, we can put a stop to that because we've understood how to prevent that from happening. And we've applied science and technology to assist that. And so what we're talking about here, and it is the perfect example, really, of, of analysing a, a product and a problem, and, and working to find the solution. You explained to me that an LED light is is immense heat and the, um, the packaging that the, the surrounds most of them, especially the cheapest ones, is not made to extend the life of that product. It's simply made to work in its most simple form and not actually provide you with the end, end product. What you've done is completely rethink that from the start to the point where you're, you have a... I mean, it's hard to describe in the, well, there'll be photos, but... You have a, a piece of, of piping, tubing, that inside it is a vacuum and a drop of water. That alone blows my mind to understand the concept. And that takes the heat from the light and, and extracts it away, which reduces the overall temperature of the light and therefore the life of the light. So you're creating essentially lifetime product here. Yeah, we are. And... Um I mean, we, we didn't invent heat pipes, which is what you're referring to as a pipe that's doing the job of removing the heat. Um, they were originally invented for satellites in outer space. So where, did you, where did you see it? Did you, did you see a documentary or read a book or something that, and you went, oh my, look at that. Like, was there a moment that, that you thought that's the thing I could use? No, what, what we, what we realised is a semiconductor, by the way, an LED is a semiconductor, um, and there are other forms of semiconductors and drivers within computers. So we ripped, we bought a load of laptops off eBay, ripped them apart and, and had a look at how they were cooling them. And it was only when we went, when we went to see the companies that make heat pipes that we learned that they were originally uh, introduced into satellites for controlling the temperature of equipment on satellites through the fluctuations of minus 200 degrees to plus 200 degrees between the shade and the sun in space. <laughs> now, you've taken that and you've created a, a series of of lights for, for the home, for the office, whatever, however one wanted to use them. Um, and you've combined what is obviously a, a hugely impressive bit of technology in its simple form. I and mean, it's tragically simple, really, what you've found and put together to create the, the cooling system for the light. And you've combined it with a complete rethink of the, the lamp stand, too. Um, is there an inspiration for the stand? Because it's uh, it's quite. A, we're sitting on a couch here, and I can just reach across and just bring the light to me. It's uh, it's a very different experience for someone sitting here with a light. You just normally have, don't have that experience with a light. Well, I think a light is theatrical, and so are the the products that that emit light. They've, they've always been important to be beautiful objects in the home. 
But, you know, we want to rethink things right from scratch. And, and one of the tasks is we introduce a new mechanism for adjusting the position of the lamp. And, you know, being a designer, I've spent a lot of time working on a, a drawing board in my, in my younger years. And it's that, that action of a drawing board by gliding the ruler uh, left, right and up and down, which works on a very, very similar sort of linear rail system with pulleys and wheels. So, so I have to confess, that's where the inspiration came from. Simply sitting in front of a drawing board for so long. The um, the other product is is a more commercial product, and my first reaction, I'll be honest, was it looks amazing, but it also I'm tipping it's going to be expensive. And my first question to you then was, how as a building manager who who whether you're building a brand new building or you're refitting it, how can you justify the the high price? But the interesting thing that you explained to me is that the efficiency and and the ability for the light to work in a much more um, broad way in a in a single space actually makes means you need less of them than a traditional light that that has the potential to revolutionize commercial lighting doesn't it well engineering comes at a price a good engineering does um but plenty of engineering that doesn't unfortunately um but i think i think you have to uh, you know look at it the right way um which is that you know, if, if you're buying lights for, for a building, um, you don't want to buy them one year, invest all this money, and then have to buy them again four years later. Mm. Uh, you end up paying twice the amount. And, you know, we, we although this light's not going to be cheap, um, we, it is special and it's clever because you need less of them. So ultimately, when you, when you synthesize your lighting scheme, you'll realize very quickly that you need far fewer of these than you would have a competitor's lamp. So not only do you save money on installation, you use less electricity and you buy less products and it still gives you lifelong performance. So the maths adds up and they become very, very attractive. I think the last thing I I would leave the conversation with and, and people listening with is the idea that you don't need to light a whole room. That, that, to be honest, that's aside from the amazing technology, that's one of the things I'm taking away from today is when I walk home and turn on the, the lights in my lounge room, which are four, actually they are LEDs too, four kind of pointed LEDs pointing in different ways around the room to light the room. Why are we lighting the whole room? Why are we not just lighting the area where the kids are needing to play or the lounge that I'm sitting on for the book or just the, where I'm sitting to create an ambient light? We spend our lives lighting entire rooms when what we need to do is light an area or a thing or a task it's a very different approach that people need to take when they're looking at a product like this and and maybe it changes the way you design your rooms and uh, and you create the lighting around it we hope it influences that um, there's a lot of education to be done con- to consumers particularly in domestic homes and and the same the same problem applies uh, you know w- when you're decorating a home as to when you're renovating an office you're leaving that to someone else and um, so because you don't really understand how to light a space, you're asking your electrician to just put lights in your ceiling. Um, and, and, and then when, when you turn the lights on, there's too much light. And the same thing happens in office space. Like if, you, if you're a, a lighting designer designing for commercial space, quite often you just tick these metric boxes. Uh, so almost like a building regulation process, being unsympathetic of how people will actually work in that space. Now, you don't want your architect or the owner of that building to turn around at the end of it and say, I'm sorry, there's not enough light. So you put too much light in there to compensate. And it's, it's, but, but lighting shouldn't be like that. Lighting and efficient lighting is about putting light where you need it 
And by doing that, you get more dynamic, more contrast, and more interesting spaces that are far more attractive to work in than a bleached-out box. It's a beautiful uh, piece of engineering. It's a beautiful product, and I hope the success of the product matches your passion for the product. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to meet you. Talking technology without the jargon. Your Your Tech tech Life with Trevor Long. And we do it all thanks to the good people at Alcatel and the Go Play smartphone. This is a $299 weatherproof, dustproof, and shockproof smartphone. Uh, we saw this launched recently. Um, I've got information up on the website. Uh, IP67 waterproof and dustproof rating. It comes in a couple of colors. You can record cool stuff on your mobile screen. You can add voiceovers. You can shoot photos underwater. has a great battery life. Um, and it is available now at Big W, Australia Post, and other uh, retailers. But you can find it at Big W. Just search Alcatel Go Play at Big W. Um, that's the kind of easy, outright purchase you want to make. This thing, waterproof, dustproof, shockproof. So it doesn't matter where you are. You're on a train. Someone pushes you while you're texting. This thing flips, slips from your fingertips. You know, these things happen. The Go Play has you covered when you've got the dropsies or you've just got a bit of bad luck. So there it is. The Go Play from Alcatel. Um, full review up at eftm.com.au. Available now at Big W and Australia Post. One of the other stories I had up this week on the website I thought I'd quickly mention here, the clever boys from the crew at Aussie company Shark Mitigation Systems in Perth. They have developed a clever boy. That, and I'm talking about a boy as in a floating boy in the water. So they've tested um, successfully off the Bondi Beach a boy um, that has dangled underneath it some very, very smart technology. It's using sonar and things to look for sharks. So it sees the sharks in the water. It monitors them to see how they're moving, where they might be moving to. And then if it feels that the shark is a threat to the beach, it will send an alert via mobile communication that it's connected to. It'll send an alert back to the beach. So the beach um, you know, patrol can either take a closer look or put out a warning and get everyone off the beach. It's sensational. It's a great little product. It's an Australian product developed in Perth. Um, well worth a look, and congrats to them for that, because their idea is we don't need to cull sharks at all. We may be able to just detect them and then get out of the water. Great idea. Good stuff. Shark mitigation systems. Your Tech Life with Trevor Long. Now, in a minute, we'll talk vivid and photography tips but before then, a quick shout-out and call-out. If you know someone who works at Telstra in any technical capacity, I just want to know what the hell's going on. Now, the other day when Telstra's internet went down on both ADSL and NBN, for not everyone but a large group of people, I very quickly, based on a lot of information I was seeing on social media, made the assumption that it was a firmware issue. Now, firmware is the software that runs on things like routers and modems. And Telstra has the ability to push, as in send without your consent, an update to the firmware, the software, on your router modem. And they do that now and then. My information is they did a software upgrade late at night and all hell broke loose. Telstra have flatly denied that to me, but... All of their releases talk about weird network communication things, and I'm still seeing conversations from people about firmware and routers and modems. 
honestly, they've just got to come clean. If I'm right, they've just got to say so. It's frustrating. Someone stuffed up. Someone didn't test it. They probably shouldn't be allowed to do that again. But what went wrong? Andy Penn's been on Twitter saying that he's, he's reading all the messages. He's across it. But what the hell went wrong? So if you know someone at Telstra or you have more information, I am keen to not let this story rest. I'm keen to develop this and understand this. I want to know what went wrong. So if you have any information or you've had an experience and you, you know more than I do because it didn't affect me, I'd, my internet didn't go down. So I don't have direct in, input and understanding. Love to know what you think if you've got any information. Uh, just go to the website, eftm.com.au. Jump on Twitter at Trevor Long. Or, of course, you can go to uh, Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash Trevor Long for, um, for uh, my Facebook page. You can like, follow, that kind of thing. That's what you can do there. That's what we do. Um, and uh, thank you for that. Now, quickly, before we go to our uh, vivid conversation, uh, a couple of reviews. I don't know if I've read these ones, I've got to be honest. I've been a fan for a year now and try to listen to every episode. No jargon chat um, around gadgets and technology. Enjoyable. Thank you, uh, GTLSE. Uh, and from um, KYLS1, Supreme. Five stars. Thanks very much. I've been listening around. I've been listening for only a couple of months, but this is one of the best tech shows I've heard. Trevor explains things in plain English to everyone to understand. I really like how he has listeners' calls. Thanks for the great podcast. Well, you can call in. Send me an email. Go to the website, eftm.com.au. Um, and uh, I think I know who sent this one. Uh, it's by Loweth. Loweth. Uh, uh It's titled Jeff Egan. I'm quite sure I get that, Rob. But uh, great podcast. Very informative and easy to listen to. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for listening. This is episode 331. Uh, we do it all for you. It's fun. I love doing it. I love talking to people. I love talking about your tech issues and questions. Uh, so don't stop uh, sending them in on Twitter at Trevor Long, on Facebook.com forward slash Trevor Long or at EFTM.com.au. Talking technology without the jargon. Your, your tech, tech life with Trevor Long. Well, those of us in uh, the New South Wales area would absolutely know just by the amount of attention it's getting, let alone anything else, that Vivid. Vivid Sydney starts this weekend, and I think people around the country would be also well aware because it's an event that has absolutely boomed uh, over the last few years. I remember seeing it, I don't know, when it's first or second year, and, you know, it was beautiful. It was great, but, gee whiz, it's something else now. And one of the things about Vivid is while we do love to just look and take it in, well, geez, we love taking a good photo, and it's one of those events where you'll see more uh, Facebook photos than ever, and... For those of you who are hobbyists, let alone any other style of photographer, then this is one of those events where you kind of want to want to get your get your best. And it's there's never a better photo, in my view, as a hobbyist than the nighttime shot that you nail. So let's get some advice from someone who knows their stuff. Uh, Canon uh, have a have a bunch of great photographers on their um, on their roster that, that they call Canon Masters, and Ryan Shembury is one such man from the Gold Coast. G'day, Ryan. How are you, mate? Really well. What is a what? Oh, mate, who isn't? What is a Canon Master? Well, a Canon Master, a great uh, collection of amazing photographers around Australia, which I'm I'm really pleased that Canon uh, approached me a little while back and have made me a part of uh, 
part of the team, which is which is amazing. Because you're no slouch, you're an award you're an award winning uh, photographer. You, you focus obviously on weddings. It's a it's a it's a big industry, but you do beautiful photography. I've had a look at your uh, your website. Um, well, it's one you. of those things, I guess, isn't it? Photography that, frankly, anyone can do it, but not many people can do it great. Well, yeah, I, I guess you're right. Everyone can do it, and it's it's so great to see that it's so many people's hobby, and, and mm. they really enjoy it. And, and it, um, but, you, you know, we're, we're here to help. Do you think that um, that it has like levels of? I mean, if if we could actually just anoint people as you know level one, level two, level three, etc., you'd be obviously level ten if that was the the upper end. <laughs> well, I'm going to put myself at level three, right? I, I bought okay. a I bought a DSLR, no, yeah, DSLR, um, some years ago, a Canon, in fact, uh, like a 450D, something. It was a thousand bucks. It was it was cool. And okay. I remember the very first time, Ryan. I remember taking it down to Kirribilli. I live in Sydney, so I'm I'm kind of blessed by the the most beautiful harbour in the world. And you stand down at Kirribilli and I remember watching YouTube videos, learning about aperture and shutter speed and, you know, leaving the, the expo, all this stuff. And I got this beautiful photo of the Harbour Bridge and I, you know what, I don't think I've done any better ever since. But my father-in-law, for example, has spent thousands and I'm talking used car style amount of money on his photography because he really, really gets into it. And those are the people, both my level three and my father-in-law who are, you know, probably up in the fives or sixes that will go down to vivid and try and get a great photo mm-hmm. some of us though will leave probably be a bit disappointed you might take a hundred and get one good one what are the what are the top tips what are, what are the basic things before you even go that you've got to remember to take as part of your kit bag yeah sure i mean we're talking about nighttime photography here so you know mm-hmm. one of the one of the things that is, has to be in that kit bag is a tripod, mm-hmm. and you know something that's sturdy, something that's going to hold the camera nice and still while you open up the shutter to those longer exposures in order to capture all those beautiful lights that are going to happen mm-hmm. around the harbour and and obviously on all the land all the main uh, landmarks around town. So uh, that's definitely one. But then I would say to you as well, don't be don't be fixated to your tripod. You know. Right. Take it off the tripod and, and have some fun with your camera and really uh, start experimenting as well because that's what photography is all about. It's about experimenting and, and really having fun with uh, with image making. And is that um, is that one of the keys? Experimenting probably in the same spot and, and just trying over and over because one of the things I've learnt um, I've been do- we're, we're digressing heavily here but I've been I bought a thing called a pixel stick which you know light painting yep. and I because I review yep. cars and it's 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 a beautiful way to create a new new backdrop to a car. And I will take, I'll probably spend an hour with a car parked in one spot and I'll take the same photo, I don't know, 15 times, you know, and every time it's 30 seconds or so of exposure, et cetera, et cetera. And you just keep going and you change, you know, one thing and then you change another until you feel like you're getting closer to that shot. Do you need to have that patience or or is is that just me being, you know, overly sensitive? (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you will need some level of patience. You know, mm. to, in order to in order to get what you're after, but you know, and you're talking about the right thing there in terms of you're talking about light before anything else, and that's yeah. really what photography is all about, right? It's a, photography is made up of those two words, uh, light and and graphy, which is paint, painted yeah. light. So, um, and no better way to experiment than uh, come down to Vivid and play with all the lights there. So. And, and so, what? Well, I mean, you've obviously been to Vivid a few times. It's uh, one of those things you, you would you'd probably want to get down to as a photographer at any level, including that upper upper echelon. Um, what, you know what, Trevor, I'm going to let you into something. It's my first year. Fair dinkum. Wow. Fair dinkum. And, I, and I, I can't wait. I really can't wait. From everything I've seen in the past, uh, I, I can't wait to get out there and experience how many days it. You, how many nights are you going to go down? 
I'm going to be there for nearly all three weeks. Right. So. I was going to say, because yeah. I can't imagine it wouldn't be frustrating to have the skill and then only be able to you know, apply it for one night when there is so many things to see from little installations to the biggest of our landmarks. And Absolutely. I guess, is that one of the challenges, the composition of the, of the photo, trying to ensure that you get in what you're hoping to get in? Yeah, I would say to people in terms of, you know, looking at composition, what they have in in the frame of their camera is that, you know, don't try and I, I often say to people, don't try and save the world with one with one photo. Don't mm. try and photograph everything as wide angle as you possibly can. You know, sometimes it's nice just to crop in and, and just see little snippets of what you're looking at or a different interpretation of what you're looking at. So, you know, play with it experiment, have fun with it. Don't think that everything's got to be perfect because, uh, you know, we're talking photography, we're talking a world of art and it's all open to interpretation. Is, is there also something to be said for trying to be different, uh, especially in a world where these photos are going to get shared ad nauseum on Facebook and the like? The, hopefully are. people will appreciate them in their own homes as well. But, you know, you stand at Customs House. When I remember the very first year I stood at Customs House, which is down behind Circular Quay and was blown away by their ability to, to just turn this thing into a living uh, building. It was amazing. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, I think I took the same photo everyone else took. Is there, <laughs> is there something to be said when you're in a group? And I guess this would apply at an event, like a sporting event, as a, a group of photographers. I look at uh, – I follow Formula One, love my Formula One, and I always sure. look at the fact that there's 30 photographers, maybe more, in a big bunch taking the same photo of the drivers lined up. And I think – are any of them going for a different shot? Are they just all photographers working for different people and getting the same photo? Surely in there's that a case. In that case, they probably are. But <laughs> there's one of them there that is looking for something a little bit different. And, and so, I, I can relate it in my world of weddings. Like, mm. you know, you, you go to a wedding and uh, you know there's a hundred guests there taking the same shot of the cake. Yep. And so, how do I make myself different and stand out from the crowd? Well, I've got to look at things a bit differently, and I maybe you've got to light it a little bit different to everyone else. Right. However, how everyone else is seeing it, and um, and hopefully that's what makes me stand out and what makes people like my images. So. And, and I guess you know, looking at say a wedding, your wedding portfolio, for example, on your website, um, mm. you know, there's a photo of just the rings sitting on what is probably just a you know the edge of a table or something, and yeah, that that's something that not a lot of people would see and it's a actually when i look at it now uh, again it's it's rings up against a mirror on a on a mirrored surface it's quite a unique photo because you're getting a reflection of the rings um and it's not a photo that they would have anywhere else because they wouldn't have bothered to take a photo of the ring sitting on a table um they wouldn't have taken a photo of the flowers sitting on a table either only in someone's hand so it it's often about finding that thing that isn't in the norm that's right yeah absolutely and, you, you know, photography is all about, for me at least, it's all about sort of pleasing not only my clients, but I've got to please myself because I still love it. Yeah. And I love that I can see things and create things that maybe people can't see. So I, I think you've just got to go with your gut feeling and, and go with what you feel is, um, is working compositionally and light-wise and everything else and bring it all together. So let, let's give a, a technical tip for sure. the, the budding photographer, something like, the ISO. I mean, is there is there somewhere to start there? Is there an optimal place to not go or to only be because you're dealing with such bright light in a dark environment? Yeah, look, I mean, optimally, we want to be at the lowest ISO possible for the scenario that we're in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're talking about photographing at night, a lot of lights, a lot of things going on. And, and really, I would be 
I would be tempted myself to take things off tripod and try and hand hold. So your shutter speed's going to come up, which means obviously your ISO is going to come up as well. Mm. So don't be scared. You know, um, the new cameras now, especially, you know, obviously talking on behalf of Canon, their, their, their latest camera, the ADD, is incredible at high ISO. So I wouldn't be scared to take that up to 1,000 ISO, 1,600 ISO, 2,000 ISO, and, and really play with the camera. Um, off the tripod. If you've got the tripod there, then by all means, have it as, set it as lower ISO as possible for that situation. So somewhere around 160 or 320 is probably optimal. Now, there's a few days and there yeah. are always good camera shops around. I'm a massive supporter of jumping into a camera house and not buying online because you can actually talk to someone. Absolutely. You know, is, is is one of the things that someone should consider for their kit bag if they don't have one, one of those remote shutters? Most definitely. That's going to take, uh, that's going to take all the camera shake out. So even if you do have a tripod, having your camera on a tripod, just by the physical movement of you pressing the shutter, you can still shake the camera the itself, which will in turn have the effect of a blurry photograph. So a remote trigger or a cable release um, is something that's uh, well worth the investment, in, in, in my opinion. Okay. Very good yeah. tips. Um, where, where, where do you think you'll start when you get down to Vivid? Where, where are you going to go first? Well, actually, I, I have a lot of commitments on behalf of Canon, <laughs> Canon down there. I'm at the Canon HQ uh, down at Circular Quay, and uh, we'll be doing a bunch of talks there, and you can go down there and play with all the different lenses and camera bodies and print your images, which is going to be fantastic. But I think I'll uh, one of the first spots I'll hit probably be Mrs. McQuarrie's chair, and because yeah. I've been down there a lot shooting weddings, yep. and I know it's I know it's possible there. But I'll be hopefully again I'll be hopefully to uh, see it a little bit different than than everyone else. Well, uh, where do you do you share your photos much, or do you? Yeah, uh, because I as do. a professional I'm, I'm on photographer, Facebook and Instagram just under right. Ryan Shembury, and uh, hopefully I'll be sharing a, a whole heap uh, from from Vivid, especially just like everyone else, right? Facebook so. and Instagram, Ryan Shembury, nice and easy to find, I'm sure. Ryan, it is uh, it is an awe to to look at the work of someone like yourself, and I mean that towards many uh, great photographers, and you know I. I, you know, Instagram's great for that, don't you think? Um, you know, you can flick through. It's funny, I've got a, a, a good friend of ours kind of through, you know, kids in school and stuff. Um, Sam Rutten works for the Telegraph. And, you know, he posts every now and then, he posts a photo that he's taken professionally somewhere or other, and he just go, I'm, I'm out. How can I compete with this? Do you know what I mean? But it's, so, it's a great thing, to, especially if you have a, even a small passion for photography, to find great photographers on Instagram so that you're you're looking at that work as a regular thing and finding inspiration for your own next little adventure. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I would say, yeah, we, we don't post to make people stop photographing. We post to, so it inspires you and, and keeps you going. So. Good work. Well, Ryan, enjoy your time in Sydney and uh, look forward to – I'll jump on Instagram now and I look forward to seeing – the work over the next few weeks uh, from Vivid when, you, when you're allowed out of your, your commitments with Canon, which I'm sure they'll be fine for. <laughs> no, I'm sure they'll let me out. I, I can't wait to be down there. Thanks so much, Trevor. Good on you, Ryan. Thanks for the chat. Cheers, mate. Talking technology without the jargon. Your, your tech, tech life with Trevor Long. Well, that's a wrap. That's enough. I think we've, we've nailed it this week. I don't know. Might be wrapping myself there a bit heavily. <laughs> um, appreciate your, uh, your feedback. Do get in touch. I love hearing from people. Uh, whether it's on Twitter or uh, or via email, whatever it is. We've got a bit coming up this week. Uh, we're going to test the new 360 Fly 4K tomorrow at the zoo. Um, I'm on air this weekend on 2UE between uh, 12 noon and 6 p.m. 
on Sunday. So if you're in Sydney or on the app, listen this weekend and call in, say good day. Uh, next week's Origin Week. So Queenslander. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Thank <music> you.